welcome um, to Midtown 12 South. There, our elementary age kids are heading down to uh, get back into Kid Town. They're with us for the first part of worship, which is a gift to us and to them to have our kids with us. Um, but a few seats maybe opened up too if you're looking for a seat in the back if you need one. But uh, welcome to Midtown. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor. We'd love to get to meet you. If you're here and you've got questions, um, you're here and you've got uh, confusion or, or, or maybe even stumbling blocks on the way to exploring Christianity, exploring the way of Jesus. Uh, we just want you to know here that we welcome your questions. We really do. Uh, we value questions and the people who ask them, and we're glad that you're here. Um, I will also tell you that whatever questions you bring in this room, I, we probably won't be able to answer all of them, uh, but we're really glad you're here. Uh, the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does give us a person uh, and his name is Jesus, and we would love to introduce you to him. We would love to help you get to know him. Uh, and for our members and regular attenders, we're glad you're here. You know that we've been uh, in a series on Revelation. This is our seventh week in Revelation, almost halfway through our study of the book. Uh, it's been a lot. Um, here's what we believe about Revelation. Revelation is not an end times predictor book. It was not written thousands of years ago uh, to churches in the first century, and it didn't have, uh, it, it was not written and had no meaning for them. See, if it's just an end times predictor book and, and that people thousands of years later after it was written were meant to take it and decode it and apply it to their current times of who is this talking about and who's the beast and who's the antichrist and what's the mark and all that, then, then we've missed what the book was written for. Because this book was written, it's an apocalyptic letter written to seven actual churches and they received this letter and they received this vision, they received this revelation to them and it meant something to them. It encouraged them, it challenged them, it, it, it gave them comfort, it helped them stand in the midst of all that they were facing and their suffering and their trials and their persecution and their doubt. And it gave them something that they needed and it meant something to them. If all it is is an end times predictor book, then it was not meaningful to people who weren't walking through it in, in real time. And so we come at it, we believe very biblically, understanding this was a letter written to actual people to help them with the real world they were facing. And any apocalyptic letter, any apocalypse, any revelation is always meant to show the listener, to show the reader a divine perspective on earthly realities. So it's pulling back the curtain. It is revealing reality. It's showing us, hey, you can't always see the full scope of reality with your five senses, but let me pull back the curtain. Let me show you an apocalypse. Let me give you an apocalyptic revelatory vision of reality. Let me show you Jesus as he actually is right now. Let me show you the current Jesus and how he sees the world and what's going on in his realm and how does that actually help encourage and challenge and comfort us in real time. So this apocalyptic letter jumps around all over the place. John, who's getting this vision, is jumped around. He's seeing this scene and this heavenly scene and then these actions take place and he's jumped all around. And it's not until you kind of get the full scope of the book that you go, oh, you can begin to make sense of some of the images, not all of them, and, and make sense of some of the scenes. And so because John's jumped around to this scene and then he's in this heavenly scene and he's in this throne room, we're jumping around as we study it. We're trying to get a fuller picture of all that John saw and all that John heard as he was jumped around into this apocalyptic vision of reality. It's kind of multiversy, okay? It's kind of jumping around to different uh, realities of the heavenly realms that we don't always see. So we're looking at the book thematically, studying the themes of Revelation as they are revealed to John. Last week, we finished up the, the theme of the paradox of Jesus. 
We looked at that for a couple of weeks, that Jesus is a paradox. He's at the center of reality, and he is both lion and lamb. He is both justice and mercy. He is both all power and all humility. He's a paradox. And then because of that, the followers of Jesus, the followers of the lamb, they then embody a paradox while on earth. We become a people of paradox, especially in our grief and our sorrow and our questions. We are a people of paradox. So now we're jumping to another theme. We're jumping all around. We're jumping to another theme that's all throughout the book. We finished up the paradox of Jesus last week. Now we're gonna spend a few weeks looking at the praise of Jesus. You'll notice how hard I worked that every theme we're gonna study begins with the letter P, okay? So you didn't know that. Need a win every now and then, okay? Feels good. So um, this, this week begins the praise of Jesus, the praise of Jesus part one. What does Jesus deserve and why are all these people praising him? So we're gonna look and listen into these scenes with John. We're gonna be in Revelation 5. We're gonna jump to Revelation 14. And then we're gonna be in Revelation chapter 19. We're, we're kind of jumping, but if you, you can flip in your Bibles. Uh, if not, just trust me, this is what it says, okay? It'll be on the screen uh, for you. Here we go. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 8. This is the praise of Jesus, part one. Here we go. And when he, that's the lamb, that's Jesus, had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Jumping to Revelation chapter 14, just two verses. Revelation 14, six and seven. John's jumping around. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In Revelation 19, starting in verse six, Revelation 19, six through 10 says this, I'll wait for the pages to stop flipping. There you go. Just to give you a chance to get there. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay. So I know we're jumping around. But when John is given this revelation of reality, it's just being revealed to him, kind of scene by scene. He's walking around, being transported around in the heavenly realm, seeing reality. He's seeing things as they are happening in real time. Some of them are future visions, but most everything that John sees is a real current reality for John's current present tense life. And one of the most repeated realities that John will see over and over and over again as he's getting a vision of present tense reality is that Jesus is currently being worshipped. He is currently being worshipped in the present tense over and over and over again. John is caught up in a vision that displays not just not just all the saints that have gone before him, all the, all the martyrs and all those who were, who were persecuted, not just all the Old Testament saints of old, but every creature of our God and King. We just sang this song, all creatures of our God and King. Every creature in the universe is worshiping Jesus. It's like the opening scene of Lion King on steroids. It's like everybody gathered around from all different realms, from everywhere, all the creatures beholding Jesus and worshiping him. John sees this scene over and over and over again. Look with me again at chapter five, verses 11 through 13. This is kind of the this is the thesis statement. This is the thesis. It's the primary scene of worship. Now, it happens a lot, but this is the first time John sees it. John chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Courtney, you can throw this up. Probably already got it up. She's a teacher. She was ahead of me. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, mermaids were there. And all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That is what is currently going on in reality. Like we don't see it. Our senses are limited. But there is a reality that you can't see. And in that reality is a Jesus who is currently being worshiped. Now, lots of other heavenly realities are going on too. It's not all that's going on. But one of the most repeated themes and scenes in the entire book is that all creatures of our God and King are beholding Jesus, King Jesus on the throne, with no fog and no dim in the, in the window. They are seeing him clearly. And when they behold him with an uninterrupted and an unobstructed view, when they see Jesus, they worship him. Why are they worshiping him? Well, first, what is worship? What are they doing and what do we mean when we say they're worshiping him? Like what you've come to today is a corporate worship service. And so what did, what did you come to? What do we mean when we say you've come to worship? The word worship is not something that just religious people do. I know it's got religious connotations and I know we think of religion and church when we think of worship. But worship, the word actually comes from the old English worth-ship. And it's blended in etymology, it's blended into worship. But worth-ship, it's like friendship or partnership, ship connotating the essence of something. So when you and I are worshiping, worth-shipping, we're declaring with our actions and our minds and our hearts and our words, we're declaring something to be full of, to have the essence of worth. It is worth something. Do you know that you do that 
every day. We believe at Midtown that all of life is worship, that when you woke up this morning, you were declaring something, even if you hadn't spoken anything yet, in your heart and in your mind, you were declaring something to have worth. Maybe you were declaring sleep to have worth and you wish you'd get more of it. Like I, you woke up feeling like there's something that has worth and I'm setting my mind and my heart's attention all the time on something that I believe has worth. It's worth me giving my time to. It's worth me giving my attention to. And so we are constantly worshiping, worshiping, declaring things to have worth. We will attach our worshiping affections to something at all times. The late author, David Foster Wallace, brilliant man of about a, 20 or 30 years ago, wrote a giant book called Infinite Jest, which I have not read, but he wrote lots, wrote lots of essays, wrote lots of articles. He gives this famous commencement speech at a, at a university. It's called What is Water? Go watch it on YouTube. They've got the audio of it. It's fascinating. Here's what David Foster Wallace, here's how he sums up what we're trying to say this morning. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now, David Foster Wallace, not a Christian. He's a secular author saying, look, I'm not even a religious person and I will tell you that atheism doesn't actually exist because you will worship something that you think has worth and is worth giving your life to. So everybody's worshiping. Everybody is declaring something to have worship, to be worthy of worship. I do that with food. I do that with community. I do it with relationships, all good things. I do it with the NBA. Love it. Love the NBA. It's worth a lot of money, but it's worth something to me, okay? It's, it has worship to me. I do that with music. I do it with money. I do it with leisure. I do it with status. I do it with beauty. Not enough. I do it with family. I do, I'm declaring things that have worth all the time. I declare something to have worth to me. And then because it has worth to me, because it's worthy to me, I will then practice activities that reinforce the belief that I have that it is worth something. So I watch a lot of NBA. I eat a lot of food. I spend a lot of time with friends because those things are worth it to me. So I don't know if you consider yourself an atheist, an agnostic, or a skeptic. I don't know if you're checking out church today. I don't know if you've been in church since you were a fetus. Here's what I know about everybody in the room. You came in here worshiping something. When you walked in the room this morning and the music played, that was not when your worship began. You were already worshiping something before you got here. Now, maybe what the music and what the call to worship actually is meant to do is actually to reorient and redirect where my worship is headed what I'm actually declaring to be worthy of something, to have worthship. You are a worshiper. You are constantly, I am constantly declaring things to have worth to us. Please know, this is just trying to help us see this picture that we are all natural born worshipers. Please note in these scenes, we read several of them, there are others in the book of Revelation. All these worshipers, myriads of myriads, countless numbers, every creature, all creatures of our God and King. Please note in none of them, does anybody tell the worshipers that they have to be worshiping the King? No one's, it's not like live studio audience where it's like, now laugh, 
Now clap like, hey, the king's here and you're gonna, he's got a fragile ego and so you're gonna wanna you know, say things that make him feel good. They just behold the king and they can't help but direct their worship to him. He's worthy of something. He's worthy of our heart's affection and attention. When you and I see something with worth, you will worship it. Did you catch, this is again, just a little side note. And it's, it's kind of comical. It's also trying to show us something. It actually happens twice in the book of Revelation. We read one of them in our passages. Did you catch at the end of the chapter 19 passage, which talks about marriage, supper of the lamb, which we'll come back to the wedding feast that's coming. We'll come back to that in a couple weeks. So come back. But there's a, there's a little bit at the end of the chapter 19 section, verse 10, Courtney, we throw up chapter 19, verse 10. Look, look at who John worships. Then I fell down at his feet. You know who his feet is? The angel that's revealing all this to John. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. Like this angel knows what happens to angels that get worshiped. Lucifer is one of them. The angel's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't worship me. Don't worship, please. God, I didn't ask for this. Like, don't, don't do that. <laughs> he says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Here's all that that's showing you. John is a human being and he is a natural worshiper. When you're in the presence of beauty and awe and glory and wonder and John is seeing all kinds of incredible things, he has to worship something. He has to fall down and worship. I mean, this is, this is kind of comical. John's in heaven and he's worshiping the wrong thing. <laughs> like, because we're just worshipers. Like he, he can't help but I'm in the presence of beauty and wonder. I have to fall down and worship something. It happens again, same exact scene where John worships the angel. It happens again in chapter 22. Because it's, it's what David Foster Wallace is trying to say. The question is not if you're going to worship something. The question that all of us have to answer is, what are you going to worship? So what do we typically worship? What are the categories that typically draw our heart's affections out that we would then declare those things to be, to be worthy of it, to have worship? There's some clues in the text. We're going back to chapter five. We're going to read this passage a couple more times because there's so much in it. Chapter five, verses 11 through 13. And listen for the myriads of myriads, the thousands of thousands, all, the, every, all creatures of our God and King, listen for the language of what they think Jesus is worth, okay? What they think he's full of and therefore worthy of the praise. Listen to this, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Power, wisdom, wealth, might, honor, blessing, glory. That's what everybody who beholds Jesus in an unobstructed view says, you are full of those things. And because you're full of those things, you're worth, you deserve those things. You're worthy of those things and you, and you are the essence of them. You are those things and therefore you're worthy of our praise because you hold them all. 
The worshipers are worshiping Jesus because Jesus is on the throne and he possesses all of those qualities, power, wisdom, wealth, might, honor, blessing, glory. He's worth something. And they're chanting to the worthy one. What's interesting is that in this chanting from the masses, a lot of studies have been done on this. Do you know that the things that they're chanting, the, the masses, they didn't invent they don't come from the religious Christian world of the first century. The things that the masses are chanting come from the secular political realm of the first century. L listen to this. Worthy is one of the words that was shouted by citizens to the emperor when he entered the city. Worthy are you, worthy are you. Worthy is what was shouted by Roman senators when Caesar, the emperor, entered the great hall in Rome. And scholars have done a lot of research on this, what's called the first century or the ancient Roman imperial hymns. Like the hymns that the people were required to sing as Caesar or the emperor entered their town or their village or when he returned home from war, what they were required to sing out. Listen to this. Listen to the, the list of words and phrases from these ancient imperial hymns. Listen to what crosses over here, almost verbatim. Listen to the things they had to say. Caesar, you are full of power, full of wisdom, deserving of all wealth, worthy of might, worthy of honor, worthy of blessing. Salvation belongs to you. Glorious is your name. And John seeing here, and the churches in, in Asia Minor, the seven churches he wrote to, are hearing this scene described to them by John. And they're going, wait, 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 wait. Um, the king of our empire makes us say those things to him. But the thousands of thousands who are gathered around the throne of Jesus, um, they're just shouting it on their own. They just behold him and they're like, forget the emperor, this is the one in charge. Because he actually possesses those things. He doesn't have a fragile ego where the, the, the emperor is saying, you make me feel like I do deserve these things and get beneath me. No, they, the, all the worshipers in every scene willingly bow down to him and say, we have to bend a knee to you because you are full of those things. You're full of wisdom, full of power, full of might, full of honor, full of glory. Salvation belongs to you. You are worthy of our worship. And that list of those qualities, that list of those things that they're worshiping him for because he has them and is them, that list also tells us something else too. It tells us the kinds of things that we typically worship. This is exactly what we worship in this culture. We give worth to power. We give worth to wisdom. We give worth to might and so forth. Worth to honor. Worth to beauty. These are the things that we as a people tend to worship. And you may go, I don't think I worship power. I don't think I worship might. I don't think I worship these things. If you don't know what you worship, here's what I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Listen for uh, or look at the places in your life where you spend your money and you spend your time. Those are our two most lucrative resources, money and time. The places where you've spent those this week that you weren't forced to, not like your job, places where you spent money and spent your time, if you follow those trails of your money and your time, you will find the thing that you think is worth something. And if you want me to give you the cheat code for the end, um, if you follow those paths, it will land you in one of those categories. Wisdom, power, wealth, might, honor, blessing, glory everything you pursue is gonna end you in one of those places. That's why you're pursuing it. That's why you're spending your money and your time on it. 
So if you don't know what you worship, figure out where you spend your money and your time. If you do know where you worship, you will see that your money and your time is landing you on one of these, in one of these categories. But here's what's happening. We tend to worship the wrong things, but it's, it's also, it should be encouraging. Like, do you, know, do you know why beauty and power and wisdom and might attract you? Because they, they are worthy. It's just we end, up, we end up pursuing them for our own sakes. We end up saying, well, I want power, so I, and I want to be worshipped, so if I get power, then maybe I'll get some glory. But those things are meant to draw you in. Those things are meant to attract you. Those are really good things. It's just we then go, oh, but everything I do, I've got to bow my knee to that thing. I've got to, bow, I've got to give every, all of my time and my money away to get myself into those positions. See, in reality, ultimate reality, not our fantasy world, our, the real ultimate reality would say, all those lists of all those great things would say that there is one who is worth all of those things. The lamb on the throne is worth wisdom and power and beauty and might and glory and honor. And they can't stop chanting it. They can't stop. They're just beholding it and going, you're the end of all the other paths we tried to chase down to find those things. And you embody all of them. So they can't stop worshiping. But let's talk about this. Can we talk? Can we be honest for a few minutes? Finally. Okay, worship is happening in the heavenly realm. That's, that's reality. That's what John sees. The curtain is pulled back. Worship is happening right now in the heavenly realm. Great. What about on March 27th, day of the covenant shooting? Did worship stop? Or what about the day you were abused? What about the day you lost your temper on your kids and forever scarred them? What about the day you had your falling out with your dad and you haven't spoken since? What about the day you failed a test and it changed your life? What about the day you got fired? What about the day your addiction began? Did the worship in the heavenly realm stop? But worship is happening at every moment. That's what John sees. So does it ever stop? Because if worship is always happening and Jesus is worthy of those things and the masses that behold him can't stop saying them, what happens, what happens when there's tragedy here? What happens when we experience anger and darkness and doubt and despair and fear and confusion and pain? Does the worship stop in heaven? Because if it doesn't stop, I got some questions. Like, is, is there room for those parts of me in worship? If I'm experiencing those things, can I actually be giving something worth? Can I be giving worth to Jesus while I'm also full of these other seemingly competing realities and emotions? Or is it possible? Is it possible that what we've come to believe about worship, that it's supposed to be these giant rock anthems and stadiums full and it's all joyful, triumphant, exuberant, and that's all fine. But what if worship is way more than that? Could it be way more than just singing songs about my victory? Could worship actually be bringing all of those other places my doubt and my despair and my confusion and my anger and my darkness and my pain and my tears. Where, where is the place for lament in worship? What if, like from our call to worship in Psalm 88 or Psalm 77 that we read together. By the way, the book of Psalms is a song book for Israel. It's their hymnal. 
And you know, in the book of Psalms, there are Psalm 77, Psalm 88, and dozens of others. There are whole Psalms. There are whole worship songs in the Bible. And guess what? They're full of despair, darkness, doubt, fear, anger, jealousy, tears, sorrow. Psalm 88 ends. That's, that's, we read the beginning of it in our call to worship. Psalm 88 ends with the psalmist literally saying to God, darkness is a better friend to me than you are. I trust darkness more than I trust you because at least the darkness will talk to me. That's a worship song in ancient Israel. That doesn't feel like a worship song, but that's worship. Or how about the book of Job? Book of Job. Job suffers unspeakable loss and tragedy and heartache. And then his not so great friends show up, three of them, and they give him a bunch of advice and they tell him a bunch of things that are true about him and a bunch of things that are true about God. And they go on and on. And then Job finally has got, yeah, you know, I've got some things to say too. And then, it, and then God shows up. And at the end, the Lord shows up and he has some rebuke for everybody. But it's so particular because he rebukes Job's friends and he says, hey, yeah, those idiots, those idiots don't know anything. They don't know what they're talking about. Don't listen to them. And then when he's speaking to Job, he has some rebuke for him. But here's what he says about Job in front of his friends. He says, but Job, you honored me. And you go, wait, <laughs> if you go back and read, it doesn't really sound like the things that Job was saying was really honoring to the Lord. He had a bunch of anger at the Lord. He had a bunch of frustration. He had a bunch of, hey, you need to come answer for yourself. He had a bunch of doubt. He had a bunch of confusion. He had a bunch of darkness. But the Lord says, but Job, you honored me. How is that possible? How is it possible that Job honored the Lord? If you go back and read what Job said, it didn't sound so honorable. Old Testament scholar, Old Testament professor of mine said that Job honored the Lord because even in Job's heart with all of its complexity and doubt and sorrow and confusion, at least Job's heart was directed at the Lord. He was pouring his heart out to the Lord with all of its honesty. He wasn't just he wasn't just complaining about the Lord to his friends and refusing to speak and pour his heart out to the Lord. He directed all of those things to the Lord, which is true about any relationship. If you want intimacy in a relationship, you have to be able to pour your heart out there. There is no intimacy in a relationship if you're not pouring your heart out to the other person that you want intimacy with. And the Lord says, that honored me. That, that was worshipful to me. That's how Psalm 88, Psalm 77 can be a song for the people of God. That's how Job can honor. That's how Job can worship the Lord because they're pouring their heart out to the Lord in the middle of their pain and sadness and despair. And here's what the Bible would say, that's worship. Worship is crying. Worship is groaning. Worship is joining in with maybe the most repeated question in the whole Bible. How long, oh Lord? How long? How long are you going to wait to come and clean up the mess? How long are you going to wait to come and redeem? How long are you going to wait to do what you said you're going to do? How long are you? In Revelation 6, the very next chapter after Revelation 5 with this huge worship scene, John gets taken, you know, he's seeing other things now. The seven seals are being broken. We'll talk about a little bit of that in a few weeks. There's a moment in the seal breaking where the martyrs, those who have been killed for their faith in Jesus in the first century, they're in heaven, they're in the throne room, and guess what they're doing? They're wailing and weeping. And they're saying, how long, O oh Lord? We know what the pain is like and we don't wanna wait anymore. Why are you delaying? What are you waiting on? That's in heaven. That's in the throne room. And that's worship. 
And I know some of you will say, because I said it, okay, that's fine, great. Uh, I can bring my full heart to worship, that's awesome. Um, But if in the middle of my tragedy, worship is still going on, doesn't that just make Jesus cold? Like, doesn't that make him so far removed, so transcendent from reality? Doesn't it make him so distant and cold and ignorant of what I'm actually going through? If even in my tragedy I can worship because I can bring my pain to him, shouldn't it all stop? Like, doesn't it make him inhuman? Doesn't it make him removed and robotic if he just has worship going on while tragedy is happening here? But look with me again at verse 11 and 12. Again, we're gonna, we've read this a lot. Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Listen to the Jesus that they're worshiping. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. Do you realize that the worship that's going on right now is the worship of a lamb who was slaughtered? Meaning the worship that's happening right now is the worship of a lamb with a slit around his neck. The worship of the lamb is a blood-soaked lamb, which means the Jesus that's currently being worshiped, the lamb that we are to worship, that the saints are already worshiping, is a lamb that knows what our suffering is like. And that's what makes him worthy. We're worshiping a lamb who's tasted death. We're worshiping a King Jesus who has tasted the saltiness of tears. He knows. He knows when you're weeping, he knows what it's like. He knows what tragedy is. He knows what betrayal is. He knows what pain and loss is. He knows my darkness, and when the masses in the heavenlies behold a slit-throat lamb on the throne, they say, we're worshiping you because of that. That's actually what makes you worthy. No other God knows what pain is like. That when you're weeping and you're curled over, when the room in the air feels suffocating, when the night couldn't get any darker, there's a Jesus who's at the bottom with you there because he's been there. Yes, he's the king on the throne, but he's also the king who's wept. He's the king who's been so full of anxiety and despair and hopelessness, he sweat blood. He knows what the dark night of the soul is. He's been betrayed by his best friends. He's wept at funerals. He knows what pain is. He knows what your tragedy is like. And if you could see him, you would see him bloodied on his throne. And if you could behold him, guess what you would do if you could behold him in that state? You'd worship him for that reason. Edward Shalito says in his famous poem, Jesus of the Scars, the other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Not a God has wounds, but thou alone. When they behold the wounded one, the man full of sorrow, well acquainted with grief, that's what they worship him for. That's what they're saying makes him worthy. 
Remember all the things that, like the categories, like the things that they say Jesus is full of and therefore worthy to be worshiped, worthy of praise, power, wisdom, wealth, might, honor, blessing, glory. Here's what makes Jesus utterly unique among all rulers and among all other gods. Now, this is not, we're not gonna unpack the Trinity this morning, but here's what you need to know about the reality of Jesus. All those things, power, wisdom, wealth, might, honor, blessing, glory, Jesus already had all of those things before he came to earth. He was fully content in the Trinitarian Godhead. He was lacking nothing in the eternal community of God. He already had power and wisdom and wealth and might and honor and blessing and glory. The Jesus who existed before time began was not lacking in anything. In the Trinitarian Godhead, he was already full of all of those things. He didn't need them. He didn't come to earth to get something he didn't have. He wasn't sitting with the Trinity before time began and going, man, I would love some power. Like, what do you think would give me power? Man, what if I made a world and I went and, and actually like died in that world? Man, that would make me feel like something. <laughs> he didn't come to earth to get all those things. He already had all those things. He actually came to earth to give all those things away. He lost all of his power and became weak. He lost all of his wealth and became poor. He lost all of his honor and was disgraced for it. Why? It wasn't to get him. It wasn't to get wealth or honor or glory. He was already full of them. He came to give them away for you. That's why he came to pour himself out. And when the nations and every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, and all the myriads of myriads and the thousands upon thousands, when they see a king who did that, guess what they say? You're worthy. That's why he suffered. That's why he has a slit around his neck. And when the masses behold a God like that, they can't stop worshiping him. And if you could see him the way that they see him, you would stand and behold, among lots of other things, and you would say, there is no God like you. You are worthy. Not a God has wounds, but thou alone. So we're gonna close in song. We're gonna sing two songs and we're gonna, we're gonna declare Jesus to be worthy. But let me, let me just guide us into this time for 30 seconds or five minutes, however long I feel like talking, okay? Let me, here, here's, what, here's, what, here's, here's how we need to come into this when we declare Jesus to be worthy. Don't you dare check your pain at the door. Don't you dare leave your sorrow and sadness outside. Don't you for one second think that you can't bring your darkness into this room. Actually bring those things to him is worship. We worship him through our tears, not without them. And when you bring him your tears, you are bringing them to a bloodied lamb who knows what your pain is like. And when we worship, it's part of what these scenes in Revelation are meant to encourage us in, when we worship, we're joining the song that's already going on. <laughs> worship is already happening because of the bloodied lamb on the throne. And so when we sing, guess why it makes you feel the way that it feels sometimes is because we get a little thin place on this side of the veil and we go, oh, this is the song from my homeland. This, this is the song in the country I've never been to, but it's my home. I'm singing songs in the place where I belong. I'm singing songs in the place where I know one day I will sing again. I'm singing songs that I was made to sing. And when you echo what the saints are singing, you'll know it's where you belong to. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy.
and the blood around your neck shows us that you're a God who knows what wounds are. You're a God who knows what pain is. And you invite us to bring our pain. You invite us to bring our sorrow. You invite us to bring our lament. All throughout scripture, your saints come before you. And yes, they bow down because you're worthy and you're full of all the things that deserve our praise. But Jesus, you're also a God who stumbled to his throne. And so may we in this hopeful thin place Behold the Jesus who is not far removed from our pain, but actually has wept with us at the bottom. May we feel the freedom, feel the joy, feel the nostalgia of singing songs from the homeland that we haven't yet been to. Guide us now as we come to worship you. Help us to see just how worthy you are. Even with our tears, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.